0: what if I told you that the messaging we're all getting during this election campaign around the timeline for the global transition to renewable energy was wildly off the mark. That we as a country have the chance to not only make ourselves resilient to the floods, fires and droughts of an already altered climate, but that we also have the chance to prosper economically to a scale that we can't even imagine using ideas and technologies that were created and developed right here. Physics doesn't care what side of politics you're on and science is science. So let's hear some science. My guest this week is a global legend in renewable energy and energy efficiency, Professor Alistair Sproul is the Head of School of Photovoltaics and Renewable Energy Engineering at the University of New South Wales. He's been working in renewables for nearly 40 years. And this weekend, if you want to vote for jobs and growth, for national security, or if you just want to protect your super, then you will absolutely want to hear what he has to say. Before we do, though, uh, we do need to play some ads. So podcasts are free to listen to but they're not free to make and um there's a bunch of people that help me make this show in order to pay those wonderful human beings we're going to play some ads here now there are ad-free versions of this show available and i'll tell you about that a little later on but first up let's put some cash in the bank there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care
1: Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's t r y l i f e m d.com. We are actuaries. In a world filled with unpredictability, we use our math skills to navigate uncertainty. Actuaries make a difference in people's lives across industries and the world. Actuaries have the freedom to work anywhere, and according to US News and World Report, we're the 25th top-paying career. Make an impact as a fact seeker and a truth teller. Use your math skills for good as an actuary. The world needs you. People that think that coal and gas assets are gonna be around for a long period of time need to look at what's been happening in recent times is that coal plants getting older and older, routinely falling over, um, particularly in, on you know, hot summer days when we really need them. So. It's like running an expensive um, old car. Uh, it's expensive to maintain, expensive to keep on the road, and prone to breaking down. I think people in the industry um, more and more are recognising that coal, in particular, is, is going to um, move out of the Australian network far more quickly than perhaps many imagined, and and that's 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 just the economics of it. That is Professor Alistair Sproul. I'm Oshi Ginsberg,
0: and this is Better better than yesterday. Hello and welcome. This is Better Than Yesterday. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, This is a tri-weekly podcast that is just here to help make your day-to-day better than yesterday. That's it. Something you hear on this show and every show will do just that. And we do it by having conversations with people from all around the world, from all works of life, all walks of life, some of them experts in their field. And every one of those conversations will leave you with something that just makes that angle of your tangent just a little bit more closer to whatever it is you're after. <laughs> Better than yesterday. That's what we're here to do. Been here since 2013, here on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Uh, Mondays and Wednesdays with a guest, and Fridays, um, I'm here with you. Uh, my name's Osha Ginsberg. I'm a TV host. I'm a podcaster. I'm an author. I'm a zero emissions enthusiast. You know, my I do we have skin in the game <laughs> for this episode? Well, all episodes. And I am a lover of facts. Facts, I love them. Except when I'm they disagree with what I believe in and I'm like, Darrr. now I have to go through the acceptance part. But then I get, eh, acceptance and then facts are good again. You can support the show if you like. There's a Patreon that I'll tell you about later on where ad-free and video episodes of the show are available. And uh, you can also get me, your email at gmail.com. Ah. Also on Instagram, if you want to find me through the week, it's super easy. So let me tell you about my guest today. Professor Alistair Sproul is currently head of school at the School of Photovoltaic and Renewable Energy Engineering at University of New South Wales. He is a legend worldwide for his work in solar power and energy efficiency. Alistair has hundreds of published works, including two books, 73 journal papers, and 90 conference papers. No surprise, he's been cited over five and a half thousand times. Now he and I have a pretty interesting origin story. I'll let him take you through how we first met. However, from the moment that we started talking, I could tell that efficiency was one of his core drivers, not just energy efficiency, but also economic efficiency. How can we not only save the environment that we rely on to live, but also save some cash while we do it. Big thanks to Andy Ma for cutting this episode together so quickly. It was only recorded two days ago, but I really wanted you to hear it before the election this weekend. Our major political parties in Australia both have energy transition policies. However, once you hear what Alistair has to say, a man who is politically agnostic, but as an engineer is always looking for the most efficient and elegant solution to a problem, you may just think about your vote a little more carefully. The world's energy demands aren't going anywhere and someone is going to lead the world in green steel, green aluminium, exported green energy, it may as well be us. We're in the best position in the world to take advantage of this and we have a chance to not only protect our way of life and give give our kids economic opportunities that we could have only dreamed of, but we have that chance only if we act right now. So while I'll never tell you who to vote for, If what I've just talked about sounds like something that you want yourself and your kids to be a part of, maybe do some homework. Find out who in your area is funded by fossil fuel companies or is backing a slow crawl towards transition and perhaps consider putting them last on your ballot paper. I urge you, find out who you can support that is pushing policies which reflect (laughs) a transition to renewables as fast as possible and help break the stranglehold that the fossil fuel companies have on our country. There's plenty of upside to supporting rapid climate action through a strong policy and investment. You're about to hear that the timeline we've been told by major parties isn't really close to how fast things will actually change. And we can either let this wave of change literally drown us or we can ride that wave all the way into the future. I hope you enjoy this chat. With Professor Alistair Sproul. Alistair, I'm I'm really grateful that uh, we could we could speak to the speak to you today, great, um, uh, Doctor Alistair Sproul. You are the first podcast guest that I have had on my show um, that uh, that I met in the way. That I met you, which yeah. I found to be absolutely wonderful.
1: Well, Do you remember yeah. where we met? Oh, yeah, of course. It was just out of Goulburn. We were both uh, lining up to charge up our electric vehicles. <laughs> and, and
0: quite rapidly, as often happens when I'm an EV charger, it descended into vast
1: nerdery very, very <laughs> quickly. Well, look, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's probably a small set of people at the moment. So uh, when you meet a, a fellow EVer, you know, you've got, to, you've got to welcome them with open arms.
0: It's interesting, though, that the, the, the early adopters of electric vehicle technology um, are looked at the way they're looked at. And I'd like to kind of explore that with you today. You're an extraordinarily um, respected person in your field. Uh, you have more letters after your name than, you know, my kid knows in the Song of the Alphabet. Uh, <laughs> your, your work in renewable energy goes back. Um, right to almost the start of, I guess, non-space-related solar
1: <laughs> power. Yeah, look, that's, that's, yeah, that's right. I, look I didn't realise it at the time, but my first job after university, I was 21 years old and I uh, landed a job with a company that was called Tideland Energy. They didn't work with tides, they actually worked with solar, but they were using solar to power navigational equipment back in those days. But um, they, that soon became BP Solar, and yeah, we were making we were making solar cells in Brookvale behind Warringah Mall uh, in Sydney uh, in the eighties. Uh, had been set up by colleagues of mine um, who's sadly no longer with us. Uh, Stuart Wenham and and Bruce Godfrey still with us. But those guys set it up in the mid eighties, early eighties. And I, I arrived in about yeah I arrived in eighty five. So didn't realise at the time. Just I was just a kid. Didn't realise that this is very early days for. Terrestrial solar, as you say, yeah, not used in space, but used for navigational equipment, um, professional usage of power, you know, out in the sticks where you need repeater stations for uh, telecommunications, that sort of thing. Um, so very professional applications where they could afford the price tag. Back then, you know, we were making solar cells that made power at about 20 times the cost of what you get it out of your wall. So we had a long way to go. We were very small and very expensive, but that was, pretty early days and Australia, we were making about one sixth of the world's production back in those days, um, which we thought was pretty good.
0: Australians may not realize the role that our country's played in in solar power. Oh yeah, definitely. What, What are some things that our country and Australian researchers and Australian designers and Australian entrepreneurs, what are some things that we did that contributed to where we are now? Uh, with solar power? Oh, for
1: sure. So Martin Green, Professor Martin Green, University of New South Wales, um, he's he's the absolute uh, pinnacle of of photovoltaics. He's just come back recently from Japan. He was awarded the Japan Prize. So the Japan Prize is sort of, you know, second only to the Nobel Prize. Um, Wow. And so Martin Green and all the rest of us at UNSW have been working on um, solar since Martin started it. Back in the 70s, and um, some of the early designs that Martin came up with in the 80s resulted in a solar cell sh- design called the passive, uh, sorry, passivated emitter and rear solar cell. That's called the PERC cell. Now that that acronym PERC, you'll find that if you look, we think about 80 to probably 90 percent of all solar modules manufactured and sold today has at their heart the perk technology which originated out of the University of New South Wales in the eighties and nineties. So yeah, it's it's not a bad achievement, is it?
0: It it is extraordinary and yet some part I mean, how was you know, how people who knew knew um, you know, there was talk about that eventually this carbon thing is going to be a problem. Eventually the 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 carbon dioxide emissions are going to cause, is going to make a decision for us, um, yet people were pretending it didn't exist. Um, at the time, the cost per kilowatt hour, as you mentioned, was colossal, mm. to, you know, to what it is now. It's, it's, it, and it's, it's probably fallen since we've been talking. <laughs> um, was the scale and the scope of what was possible uh, in people's minds uh, then were people looking going, no, really, invest, this is going to be incredible?
1: Uh, look, I think, I think there's always been uh, people who felt that the technology could grow and become uh, the sort of technology that it's going to be, which is it's going to make a major contribution to global energy and help us to combat climate change. Um, I think for some of us, you know, it, it, it takes a little while. I mean, I think I was a, a dreamer early on. I dreamt that you know the world could be powered by sun, wind, and water. Um, and I think, but, but I think that that's sort of been there's been hints of that throughout history. history. Um, you can go back and look at various people, Edison, or um, the guy who sort of first thought, thought about uh, peak oil, um, King, M. King Hubbard he predicted back in 1948 that oil and coal and gas would all peak and then decline. And he said, well, what do we do after that? We have to we have to rely on energy sources that are long-term sustainable, renewable. And he pointed, of course, to the sun, the wind, and the water. And I think, you know, back in 1948, the world was a very different place and probably thinking about a few other things other than peak oil, peak coal, peak gas, and renewables. But M. King Hubbard, um, yeah, he's he was—he was, he was an, a fascinating character.
0: When you see the opportunity, I guess lost that we didn't then become—you know—through investment become the—you know—a world leader, and instead just kind of let other countries kind of do it. How do you—how do you feel? Like, was there ever a chance? Did anyone go? We should do this, and people go, no, 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 no. Or is it just something that we didn't know at the time?
1: Oh, look, I think everybody—everybody everybody in in engineering would love to see their technology being manufactured locally. And I think yeah, that's, that's always a possibility. We had a number of goes at it um, in Australia. BP Solar, where I worked. Later on, Pacific Solar, I worked with those guys. That was a spin off out of UNSW. Um, there's been various attempts and, and various goes at it over the years. The interesting thing, Osher, I think now is that it's a, it's a bit like computer chips. We probably had people in Australia working away on on computer chips for many, many decades and good ideas and and good technology coming out of Australian labs. But in the end, a lot of that has gone overseas in terms of manufacturing. But the advantage of that is that we bring back computers into Australia, which are manufactured at a very low cost. Computers these days are everywhere, integrated circuits, smart technology everywhere. And we get the benefit from that. in some ways, manufacturing is a tough gig. So manufacturing solar panels, that's, well, a nice example. Let's do an example. So a couple of years ago, I bought my electric car, which, you know, we, we, uh, met over charging down in Goulburn. So I wanted to put, um, solar panels up on my roof to give me enough charge to, you know, power to charge my car. So I probably spent, for the amount of solar panels I need to charge my car and run at 20,000 kilometers, I' probably spent 2,000 dollars worth of solar panels installed on my roof. Of that installation, um, a1,000 a goes to the uh, person installing it, uh, 500 for the um, bits and pieces needed to mount it, and about 500 dollars would go to uh, the panel manufacturers. But the benefit to me, as a consumer is that I've just taken myself off um, petrol to the next, you know, however many years my solar panels will last, and that's worth about $2,000 a year to me as a customer. So, I mean, there'll be a little bit of, you know, I'm not always going to be able to charge off my solar panels, but the principle is that'll probably, worst case, that might be $500 a year. So I'm I'm saving $1,500 a year on petrol or diesel, And that's a big advantage to me. And I only had to pay $500 to the people making the panels, right? So it's a bit like the computer chips. Whoever makes computer chips, not a lot of margins in that. Uh, You've got to put a lot of volume out. um, And that's the same with the solar modules. You've got to put a lot of volume out, but there's not a lot of margin. So, you know, yeah, I mean, there may be other reasons for Australia to get back into manufacturing, and that might be, you know, we might feel that we want to have... um, security of uh, production we want to have uh, we don't want to be able to be you know cut off by you know if there's a global crisis of some sort and manufacturing shuts down elsewhere in the world and we don't have access to the goods that we need maybe there's a, an argument for that so what's critical what's crucial we may need to revisit that but i think while we're freely trading um many things are freely traded and uh, australians benefit from low cost goods globally Produced globally.
0: We did. When we spoke, I was plugged in. I think mine, my car was towards the end of its charge, and so I was pulling, I think I took a video of it, I was pulling, I think, 50 or 45 kilowatts, bananas. Yes. (laughs) Uh, You know, that amount of electrons... It just boggles my mind to know that that's small compared to, you know, what, is physic, you know, what physics can make possible. Mm. Uh, you just plugged in like the, the amount of power that was just streaming out of these uh, charges into our vehicles and, and this energy. And the particular charging company we were using, Chargefox, they are all green energy. So, knowing mm. that mm. these, let's break it right down, these joules I'm putting in my car, you're putting in your car. These jewels are going to take me back to my family north and you to the business thing you were going south. They were not imported. They were not brought from another country. They weren't, you know, that money wasn't going to support. Perhaps, you know, a country was... Say, for example, in some parts of the world, you know, the way the the, the women are treated in some of these countries, or the way that people from ethnic minorities are treated in some of these countries, or maybe some of these countries might be currently invading another country. None of the money that we paid to charge is going anywhere to support that. And we really took we talked right about that within like four minutes of sitting there, we were speaking about where our money goes when we're looking for energy to get us through our lives as an engineer do you just get a sore forehead from slapping it so much
1: that the obvious <laughs> <laughs> answers are right in front of us Ah, uh, look i think i look i think i think these things take time these things take time it's like the solar industry now is like you know the computer industry back in the 80s um or you know not quite far back to the 50s but you know where where, where the computers came in computers in the 80s and the nineties started to come in and really sort of change our lives dramatically. And yeah, these, these things take time. You've got to get to the point where the technology is affordable, reliable, and mass produced and, and be available to everyone. And that's where we are now with solar, same for wind. Batteries are getting there. Electric vehicles are getting there. Um, but all these things are in the pipeline and coming at us and all have the potential to change the way we do things for better. And I think that's something that's, uh, you know, we've, we really need to be aiming at. How do we live sustainably on this planet? How do we live ethically on this planet? Um, how do we, you know, go about our daily business without causing harm to the planet or people elsewhere on, on this planet? So, uh, you know, I think we can do that if we put our minds to it and really uh, focus on on doing no harm to others. You know, if, can we say that about all of what we do? That's a tough question. Um, but yeah, I think it's something that we need to ask. We need to ask that question and, and get, get our technology working so that, or get the right technologies working for us uh, and that we're not doing that damage.
0: Not every engineer who comes up with solutions uh, that can scale and perhaps make either them or a company a, a ton of money speaks with such empathy, Alistair. When did you first start thinking about the idea of doing no harm? Were you like that as a kid? Did it show up later in life?
1: Oh, uh, yeah, look, I think probably, you know, I have to credit my parents here for that. I mean, you know, you are what you, what you grow up with, you know, and what you're exposed to. But I think um, my parents are um, very empathetic and, that um, you know, they, they brought us kids up to... To, uh, to look at the world in a way that said, well, you know, how do we help people? Um, so definitely, definitely, yeah.
0: Because the, the trope of the, the super brainy, you know, far future thinking technology forward engineer is usually the baddie, who's I'm going to use this thing to exploit others and da-da-da, versus I'm going to use this thing to help as many people as possible and, and try and not cause harm to other people. That's a, we never see that in the movies, do we?
1: No, no, maybe, maybe not. Maybe, 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 maybe it wouldn't sell. I don't know, but uh, it seems a shame. I mean, I think um, there was a, there was a movement in probably in the seventies when the oil crisis kicked off, and people were looking at the um, the damage from burning fossil fuels or the well, it was the oil crisis, and and we probably mm. weren't so switched on to climate change back in the seventies. It was just the oil crisis, but mm. people started to focus and look at energy, and that's that's when the first sort of Serious attempt at getting solar energy and other renewables up off the ground, but people who were people who were looking at solar and, and you know wind and all these other renewables were thinking about the longer term impact and thinking, well, hang on, these renewables, you know, are not going to be they're not just one offs. We're not going to be having to. well, we 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 still need to do some mining. We still need to you know mine silicon and do all of that sort of stuff. So we need to find sustainable ways to do that. But we're not doing as much damage to the environment, way less damage to the environment with these renewable technologies. So I think there's a lot of people switched on. And there was, look, you know, a book that I read when I was probably about 19 or 20 was uh, a book by Schumacher called Small is Beautiful. And I think he was an economist working for the coal board in the UK, who a bit like uh, M. King Hubbard looked at coal and said, gee, you know, can we can we keep doing this? Can we keep doing this, you know, eternal, everlasting growth? Is that, is that sustainable? And, and he sort of started to talk about the renewables and moving away from technologies that damage the planet. So I think, yeah, there's a few seeds like that early on in my life that I thought that, yeah, there's got to be better ways of doing things. Can we, can we look at the way nature does things? Nature um, takes uh, everything that nature uses, uh, all the, all the natural ecosystems, you know, uh, something's input from, for, for one species is, and, and their output. Well, that's, it's all, all cyclical. And I think a lot of engineers are thinking, how do we, how do we have cyclical systems? How do we have sustainable, renewable systems? Uh, because that's, they're the only ones that are going to last and make sure that, that life, life tomorrow isn't degraded by what we do today.
0: It's fascinating you bring that up because biomimicry is nothing new. Mm. Uh, you probably can't hear it, but there's a there's a jackhammer uh, nearby that's, that's digging through, you know, a couple of billion years of Sydney sandstone and it's shaking the floor under my feet. But wow. the biomimicry is obvious. Here's this jackhammer with an it's at the front of a thing. It's it's, an, it's a it's a shoulder, an elbow, and a wrist. You know right. that that's got the jackhammer on the end. That's it's that's that's all it is. It's just mm. a big steel hydraulic version of my arm with a thing that can break rock instead of my index finger. So biomimicry is nothing new in the objects that we know. Yet biomimicry around systems, uh, for example, uh, a tree and a human. Tree gives out air. <laughs> we breathe out. Carbon dioxide, tree breathes in carbon dioxide. We breathe in air. Nice. I like what we do there. Or something more complicated, like a coral reef, for example, mm-hmm. where you know the surgeon fish helps out the other fish, who you know, you know, they eat the the, the little spores and things that grow. Like having systems that are a little more complicated that mimic nature, it, which tends to be in balance, is and it corrects itself if it's out of balance. That's that's a really fascinating. Fascinating concept, Alistair, and that you've kind of gone about what you've done with this in the back of your mind is pretty, pretty, pretty excellent. You've been working in this industry. People must have looked at you kind of funny, you know, when you know you got real excited about no, oh, no, no, but it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a bus tub with a solar panel on the roof, and it's going to drive to Perth. It's going to be amazing. They're like, well, why wouldn't you just get the bus? You know, what? over time in your life working in photovoltaics in solar, what's kind of like the biggest misconception or something you're constantly always having to correct people about?
1: Oh, no, I think, I think that uh, I learned early on that um, maybe not everyone was as excited about renewable energy as I was. So um, I had to occasionally, uh, you know, calm myself down to, uh, to sort of have a conversation with people about these sorts of things. But, um, yeah, look, you know, I think that uh, there's always... the the sort of early adopters of any technology can get a bit excited about it and uh, can be sort of quite um, enthusiastic uh, about telling people. So, um, But I think it's just something that, that, you know, it starts off that, well, only crazy people. I mean, I have been told over the years, you know, a former colleague of mine probably 10 or 15 years ago said, Alistair, you don't believe that we could power society off the rooftop of our buildings, you know, with solar panels? And I said, yeah, I think we could make a fairly big dent in it. And he said, "Ah, oh, only hippies. Only hippies think like that. <laughs> but, um, you know, so, you know, you do you do run into, I mean, conventional thinking, and, and conventional thinking says all our electricity has to be generated by big coal-fired or gas-fired or nuclear-powered stations and transmitted into the cities, and, and we use it, and that's the only way it could ever work. But, you know, of course... Um, a few crazy people come along and say, Well let's put solar panels on our rooftops and and let's uh, you know put batteries in our vehicles and let's let's use the batteries from our vehicles to support the grid and big pumped hydro let's not let, let's not dam the rivers let's not build a franklin dam franklin river dam um you know that was my first that was my first election nineteen eighty three so um yeah I voted for the for the party that was going to stop. The dams in Franklin, but um, if you're a, if you're a, if you're young and foolish and don't know anything, you dream, you dream. But then, what's been interesting is that I look back and I think, my gosh, you know, what what we thought of thirty, forty years ago, we're starting to see it happen now.
0: Earlier, you mentioned the oil crisis. Now, for people that may not be aware of that, in 1973, um, America supported Israel. There a military action going on, and to punish America, the oil-producing nations of the area went, well, fine then. We won't give you the petrol you really want. Mm. And what that did is it put pressure on these gigantic Cars that you see in old movies that you know, eight-liter engines and gas was 20 cents a gallon-that's four liters. Like it was crazy cheap, absolutely, too cheap. Absolutely, absolutely. And suddenly, out of that, what do we see? We see hatchbacks, we see four-cylinders, we see you know, because it became an economic thing. Absolutely. People who live in rural, people who live in rural, you know, whatever America, they don't give two hoots probably couldn't point at any of these countries on a map but they can say well that's too expensive mm. i'm going to get a cheaper car mm. yeah another my favorite story is the oil crisis actually pushed the netherlands to put permanent bike lanes in but that's a that's another story but it became an economic thing
2: mm. Mm.
0: so only hippies want to put things on their roof well i've got this app on my phone i'm going to cover the uh, cover the logo up but that's the that's the live kilowatt hour price right now on the energy market right oh, wow. now Wow! wow at wow. 10 at 10 a.m mm. the live energy price is 54 cents a kilowatt hour now do only hippies want to pay 54 cents a kilowatt hour or do hippies want to have no thanks my energy is free yeah, well, From that's right. Roof.
1: That's right. So, you know, a, a few dreamers start off in the early, early days. And, and then, you know, as, as technology grows and becomes more affordable, as, you know, mum, dad and the kids say, well, yeah, look, you know, this makes sense. So um, suburban households now, I mean, Australia, Australians love solar panels on the roof. I mean, we are a nation uh, that leads the world in having, you know, the, the greatest number of solar panels on our roofs. Uh you know, probably something like three million homes now I think uh, or heading up, so uh, quite a lot of, quite a lot of people love their their solar panels. We also have uh, per capita you know more solar power, not only solar rooftops but also big solar utility scale plants uh, we We lead the world in adopting solar so I mean which is probably not surprising given the size of our country the um the the solar resource we have, and and relatively small population. So Australia is very, very well placed. We can put in, we are putting in solar and wind. We're growing at about 30% every year. So if we do those, we've been doing that for 40 years. We were invisible when I started in the industry uh, in the 80s, uh, but we've been growing, growing, growing. Now, 10 years ago, Solar and wind, 1% each in the electricity market in Australia. About a year ago, we reached 10%. Um, And now we're at 12%, 12% each. And what we'll do over the next decade, every decade or so, we we grow by a factor of 10. So the next decade, we will see solar and wind supported by pumped hydro, uh, batteries as well, that that will be that's the future, and we will be relatively soon at 100% renewable energy on the electricity grid.
0: And and that is for me super exciting. Like mm. part of me, I always say this to others. You know, like you can't let perfect be the enemy of good. I've been driving EVs since 2011. Wow. Uh, yeah, when I lived in a when I lived in the states because uh, California has a yes. a very intense economic and, uh, human incentive to clean their air mm. way. Mm. Like if you've ever been to Los Angeles, oh, you can, yeah. you can't see, you literally can't see the hills that are four kilometers away because there's that much pollution in the air. They have a very powerful externality pushing down on economically on their healthcare on everyone. Like, well, how many gas cars can we get off the road? Here you go. You're going to buy this car. Here you go. Washer you can have this many thousand bucks rebate. We'll, We'll put a charger in your home and the uh, power company is going to give you a, a discount on this particular circuit off your, off your pop. And you're going to get great uh, parking everywhere you go and you get access to the transit lanes. I was like, I'm in. <laughs> and I couldn't believe it that I got like I got a AAA pass to the city of Los Angeles where the traffic is shit, but I could go in the transit land at all times and I could park right next to the front door of nearly every shopping centre. Wow. And for me, I'm like, this is brilliant. I came back to Australia for work about five years later, and I was, oh man, what is this? <laughs> and it was like the it, it, because we don't have that incentive, we don't have that pressure, we don't have that population pressure, that air, mm-hmm. you know the pressure. We don't have that just yet. But you know the I don't I don't quite think people are ready for how quickly the electrification of our vehicle fleet is going to happen, Alistair.
1: Well, look, yeah, I mean, I think if it'd be interesting to to just have a look at where we are on the curve in comparison to other parts of the world so yes we're, we're we're lagging a bit at the moment but places like norway you know it's not that long ago that norway sort of started to say look we're going to really um encourage people to take up um, electric vehicles now it's not just not just 100 percent electric um they've got the plug-in hybrid electric so i think that's now it's worth having those options for people who are concerned that well, hang on, I couldn't get everywhere by electric vehicle. I mean, we 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 went for the electric option um, mainly mainly because I had some good friends of ours say to us, "Alistair, if you don't get an electric vehicle, who will?" Um, so I said, "Yeah, you're right. You're right." I, yeah, I mean, and uh, I'm not sure if my wife and I agree about who who pushed hardest. But anyway, uh, we, we both got the we got the electric vehicle, and we're both very happy with it. But um, yeah, look, Norway clearly, most of their vehicle sales are electric these days, and, and that will soon change very quickly. Change their um, their vehicle fleet over.
0: What I we've, we've spoken about like the. The domestic you know people saving money in their household and, and that has mm. been proven in our country as you mentioned mm. that that the sound of the curve of solar uptake in our country rooftop solar that's very exciting mm. um mm. that is very very exciting and you know we've come over the over the years to to hear the power companies grumbling about their instability of their grid and you know i can't help but be cynical and go yeah well that's you're not very happy that other people are making their own Jules there, mate. <laughs> like you didn't see this coming, um, but that's that. That that's just me. You are you're, you're the head of the school of photovoltaics. You, you 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 teach you know renewable energy engineering to the next generation mm. uh, of Australians who you know young men and women who are literally going to change the world mm. beyond us providing for ourselves. What what have we got ahead of us if we choose to like? You mentioned manufacturing offshore. Can we be, as Australians, in a position to be the ones that create the solar and the renewable infrastructure that we then ship overseas to then help other countries um, get off of fossil fuels?
1: Look, yeah, it's always possible. We've got a lot to catch up to the countries that are now manufacturing solar panels. Um, But I think there's, there's always going to be a role in Australia for we could easily add value to what we're already doing. So, for example, um, if if Australia, if we keep going down the pathway of where we're going with, um, we have some of the best solar, wind uh, resources available and the technologies that are going in now are driving the price down of electricity. So if we have a lot of low-cost electricity, that opens up a lot of possibilities for, for example, processing of the minerals. So rather than just digging things up out of the ground and putting it on a ship and shipping it away, you know, can we can we um, add value to what we're uh, currently producing, process uh, minerals with clean, green, renewable energy, and then ship, uh, you know, value-added products uh, overseas? And I think that's something that definitely is uh, got a lot of people looking at it and uh, getting uh, a lot more traction these days.
0: There's two two numbers that really blow my mind. As they're like, what is possible? They're like, yes, there's exporting of hydrogen, and like, how can we still become and still be a world leading energy exporter? Currently, we are the third largest exporter of fossil fuels on the planet, right? We mm. export energy. That's what we do. We send mm. joules overseas to mm. to mm. make people's hair dryers go, and you know, m- machines run and factories churn out widgets, right? We can still do that by exporting hydrogen and things, but we can also export products that have been made with clean energy Mm. to then not have that carbon go into the atmosphere in other countries. We currently, and these two figures blow my mind, uh, we currently export $70 billion a year in iron ore Mm. and $10 billion a year in bauxite. Mm. The projected green steel world market is 700 billion dollars a year Mm -hmm. the green aluminum market is uh something like 36 billion Mm dollars a year like there's a colossal numbers there's a big difference between having a solar panel solar panel on my roof that can make my oven go all right That's that's a lot of energy what kind of thing has to happen to harness renewable energy to make Green steel, for example. We've all seen those, you know, the big, terrifying, big bucket of molten steel pouring and the splashing and it's molten metal. That's an enormous amount of energy. How? how what do we need to get from here to there where we can make steel with
1: renewable energy? Uh, look, I think that's, that's happening now. That's happening now. So um, the more we get renewables into the electricity grid, uh, the more storage we get in there. Um, the more that we can say, yes, here we are. We're making clean, green, renewable energy, uh, and we're using that to make these clean, green, renewable products. Uh, well, sustainably um, smelted or whatever. You know, these we can add value to our minerals and and have clean, green products. Yeah. So that's that's happening now. There are companies. So what's happening is that um, because the price of solar and wind are now the lowest cost way of getting electricity. Companies that are in, this, in the business of, of doing this sort of thing, many, often they're going out and getting power purchase arrangements where they say, we want to source whatever electricity we need for our processes. We want to source that electricity from the grid from renewable sources. Now, that's, that's starting to happen. People are signing agreements that say, OK, as an example, the one I know best is University of New South Wales. We source 100% of our electricity uh, from a solar farm via a power purchase arrangement. And so what that means is that whatever we take out of the grid, they will put in that amount of electricity over the year into the grid from the solar farm. Not only is it the lowest cost uh, electricity available to the university, the deal they signed, uh, they were offered subsidies, but they didn't take the subsidies, they they let them go, and the deal was even without subsidies. The deal was still the lowest cost deal on the table. So that's driving. It's the economics now, Osher. Yeah. It's the economics that will drive this transition, and companies are starting to go. Oh, hang on. I can lower my. I can be clean, green, and lower cost. That's that's that's, that's yeah. pretty good. So
0: we've been told, you know, by certain red-faced politicians with the kookaburras, that you can't make steel without coking coal. What needs to happen to, like, what 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 kind of process gets the iron ore to that point? Like, it's it, it. Like, is it some kind of giant capacitor? Does it have to be right next to the solar farm? Like, how does how does it work?
1: Uh, well, okay. So steel is a bit interesting because the, um, at at the present time. Yeah, there's not a lot of green steel out there. I mean, recycling steel can be done with electricity. So if you take old steel and, and recycle it, then yes, uh, you can use electricity uh, to reduce the iron ore to take the oxygen off that. At the moment, the process does use coal. Uh, there are people and people doing this globally uh, looking at using, you know, green hydrogen. And of course, there's going to be challenges there. But uh, you know I think these things these things are uh, in the pipeline, and people are working on that The, the, the challenge for coal the challenge for coal is that um, you know is processing minerals, yes that's, that's going to lead that's going to need metallurgical grade coal, very high quality coal, thermal coal, which is what most of Australia exports um, that's going to. Have increasing challenges in the coming years, decades, simply because the renewables now are undercutting um, electricity. So that's 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 the reality. And I think Australia, we've got to be we've got to be honest with ourselves. We've got to deal with that need to say th- this change is under underway, and there are strong economic uh, reasons not to be burning coal for electricity. We can see that in. Um, Big companies in australia that are currently you know their share prices are decreasing over the last few years simply because they're losing money by burning coal and gas gas is another one very high cost very high cost it's a costly way to make electricity and solar and wind pumped hydro are cheaper so because we've been
0: told that there's this uh this Gas is a transition fuel. When I was on a and A the other night, the, uh, uh, the senator I was speaking with—Senator uh, Andrew Greg—just completely ignored what I was talking about and started going on about gas as transition fuel. Like, blah, blah, blah. like but the, the, this is the thing that I don't understand. If you're a party that claims to be economically rational, why then would you invest in or use something that is? More expensive. Why do the transition? Why? Why? Are, everyone, everyone thinks they're doing the right thing. I think I'm doing the right thing mm. having this conversation mm. with you. Why would someone from his ideological space think that gas is the right way to go? Uh, look, I think I think
1: the 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 issue about uh, gas probably. You know, I've, I've been in the energy game now for 35 years, so these discussions have been happening for a long time. And what happens is that probably. 20 to 30 years ago, the, the discussion came that to move away from fossil fuels, gas was going to be the transition fuel. And that, that, that back then made a lot of sense. So we had investment in cogeneration, generation tri-generation in the 2000s, buildings put in big gas turbines and, and gas generators, which could take generate electricity on site, burning gas, take waste heat and heat your building in the in the winter, and maybe even generate cooling in the summer. And, and that, that went along for a while in the 2000s, and then the price of gas went up, and then everybody shut those plants down. So, look, I think the, the transition, the, the time for transition is almost over. Um, you know, transition fuel. It's, it's, it's because of this 30% growth rate that I'm talking about that I mentioned before. And that's, you can just look at the last four or five years, uh, we've accelerated. Um, it's really going at that 30% per annum. That just says solar wind will grow, and driven by the market forces now, it's growing more quickly every year, will grow factors of 10 every eight to 10 years. And that just means that there's just no space left for um, you know, new gas plants uh, if people think we're going to keep burning gas and coal in Australia for decades. Um, it, it The change is happening more quickly than most people realize, and I think that the sort of thinking that may be around is, is just probably needing to stop and reassess and I think we just need to have we need to have calm um, conversations about this because this is the future of our country it's it's the future for our kids
0: beyond the future of our, our country in the future i mean only hippies want to do that like i hardly think that I'm a hippie I like I like healthcare I like Mm. roads I like Mm. security I like safety I like national security maybe it's the way I look at the world Alistair but I can draw a clear line between where we source our energy from and all of those things and what we do with the energy that we could possibly export and all of those things Um, particularly around um, for example the opportunity to have soft power in our neck of the woods, um, by, you know, exporting energy, uh, to countries in our, in our, in our neighborhood, uh, on our, on our planet. But also, you know, I, my son's going to be going into high school in 2030. All right. And t- do I want him to, you know, then graduate in five years from then into a job market that is, you know, like a record resembling Venezuela because nobody made a move and there was all these stranded assets sitting around and everyone just kept running them until the very, very last second. Or do I want him to, you know, graduate into a world was like, great, up in Gladstone, we're making green aluminum. It's going to be amazing. Let's go.
1: The, the economics the economics is a very powerful argument. So um, people that think that coal and gas assets are going to be around for a long period of time need to look at what's been happening in recent times is that, Uh, you know, coal plants getting older and older. Um, there's a lot that are now routinely falling over, um, particularly in, on, you know, hot summer days when we really need them. So it's like running, um, you know, an expensive, um, old car. Uh, it's expensive to maintain, expensive to keep on the road and prone to breaking down. So those sorts of, Coal-fired power stations—the incentive is very strong there for companies to retire them, probably more quickly than they imagined, and and that's been brought about as the solar and the winds got cheaper and cheaper. So discussions are always interesting and wonderful to have, but I think people in the industry um, more and more are recognising that uh, coal, in particular, is, is going to um, move out of the Australian network. Uh, the generation side far more quickly than perhaps many imagined and and that's that's that 's just the economics of it uh, it 's
0: interesting the 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 generational uh shift in attitude towards electric mobility you know, you're clearly an early adopter i'm an early adopter i uh, sent you a photo the other day of my um, my electric motorcycle which is <laughs> so much fun i took it to a i took it to a track day at eastern creek and now for people who don't know a track day is basically you get onto an actual race track all mm, right mm. and you go out there with a the coach and they essentially kind of show you how to a, a drive or ride better than you currently are and, and teach you, you know, techniques to be, you know, safer. And which is exactly why I wanted to do it. I wanted to do it to be a safer motorcycle rider. And all the motorbikes are parked up there at the start of the day ready for the briefing and people are walking over because, you know, this it's the only one there and people have heard a lot about this motorbike. And guys about maybe f- five years younger than, I'm 48. So guys maybe from about 43 and up looked at my bike and went, yeah, why would you? Nah, f- nah, forget about it. Guys from, the, uh, from there and down and peaking around kind of early 30s were mm. like, oh, I can't wait. Can't wait till I can get one. Mm, mm, and it was mm. just night and day.
1: Mm, night and mm, day. Mm, mm. And
0: oh. it blew my mind.
1: <laughs> yeah, look, I think, I think, you know, we are, <laughs> the age you are determines a lot of, of what you like and what you don't like. So, you know, when, you, when you're at a certain age, you, you, you sort of like the, the music of your teenage years and your 20s, and um, you probably don't listen to anything after that. So, I mean, I think that's what happens. What, you, what you're exposed to when you're a teenager and in your 20s probably shapes your view of a lot of what you, what you do. So, I, look, it's probably not surprising, but I do, I, do, I think it was um, Craig uh, Rucastle uh, uh, took, a, took a Tesla. Out to uh, Eastern Creek again, I think, or somewhere like that, and 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 had a drag race against the uh, a similar vehicle, petrol driven, and uh, of course people in the stands were saying, oh, where's the extension cord?" and you know, very very much uh, not not switched on. But once you see what these, if you're into that sort of high performance, uh, the electric vehicles uh, can uh, turn a few heads. I think they they perform quite well. Do you get
0: uh, people behind the wheel of your car? I mean, I, I love watching people's faces when they drive my car. I'm not coal miners driving Teslas. So I drive a Nissan Leaf. It's certainly not in ludicrous mode, but people still feel
1: and go, wow. Yes, yes, yes. That's right. That's right. I've, I've got to put my cards on the table here. Uh, I'm, I'm driving for efficiency, so... uh, uh I'm 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 really trying to maximise my and which is yeah efficiency is another big a big theme which I think I'm always happy to talk about so switching quickly to efficiency another untold story Osher in Australia is how we use energy so using energy um, efficiently in a motor vehicle gives you greater range using um, efficient using energy efficiently in our homes buildings industry etc. Means that we can more quickly transition to renewables and keep our, keep the price of our energy bills down, keep our energy bills down. Now in Australia, it's been fascinating watching electricity over the last decades to see that electricity always grew since, you know, the year dot, as they used to say. Well, from the fifties, electricity grew in Australia about three, four percent per annum. 2008, there was concern about um, you know peak electricity, and so the electricity companies started to ramp up prices to sort of suppress peak demand. What they ended up doing, though, was suppressing all demand for electricity. And what we found is that over the last fourteen or so years, since two thousand and eight, Australian electricity demand has flatlined. We 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 just went flat. We were we we're probably missing about fifty terawatt hours of electricity which is a huge we we flatlined at about 200 terawatt hours and so there's 50 terawatt hours of electricity that we're not using that if we kept going on the curve that we were we would be using 50 more terawatt hours today than we were say 15 years ago now that's come about because the price went up efficiency kicked in so more efficient lights uh etc buildings um, electric appliances, computers, we all switched off those big old clunky desktop computers and we all now have a laptop or a phone and do everything on that. So efficiency is, is phenomenal, but it's unheard of. And, and it doesn't get enough attention. It's the unsung hero. Now, every few years, uh, an international organization publishes a list of the who's who, you know, the, the top 30. Countries in, um, energy efficiency policy and performance. Now, Australia, we used to be close to the top 10. We, you know, recent years we went to 14, 16. We're at 18, 18 in the world. We are behind Indonesia at 17 and ahead of Brazil at 19. Most of Europe, France and Japan are ahead of us. Even the US is ahead of us, but on efficiency, we still have some work to do there. Uh, we've had some good stuff in terms of um, minimum energy performance, you know, the stars, you know, the star system on all our appliances. That's all good, but we need to keep doing it. We can't, we can't, we can't drop the ball on this, and we need to make sure that we have efficient um, appliances. Homes, we're doing quite well, um, probably have a bit of a discussion there with my architect friends who think we need to go further. But I think that our homes if six stars, seven stars, pretty good. Put solar panels on, reverse cycle air conditioning, off we go. But motor vehicles, um, you know, Australia in the OECD, one of few, the few countries that does not have any standards for how efficient our vehicles should be. And that is, you know, well, who needs standards? And then the price of oil went up um huge hugely and Australians are now scrambling and we're paying you know more than we should because we drive inefficient motor vehicles so it's, it's the short-sightedness I think the short-sightedness of the stuff just kind of
0: well we're very, very, very long sighted like oh no 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 we we're going to get some nuclear submarines and because 2042 we're going to need them and you know so long term we think stuff like that but uh, you know you've been in this industry for th- over thirty five years. It, this has all been coming, and the 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 nimto, not in my term of office, that thing always always mm. boggles my mind, you know mm-hmm. uh, and you're right about the 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 energy efficiency play. Do you know nestle cozily between Indonesia and Brazil. Uh, I don't know if I'm comfortable with that <laughs> as, it, as someone who loves my country, and I've been to both of those countries, and I see yeah. they're, they're wonderful places, and you can see there's work to do, but yeah. we never think of ourselves as there. You know, mm, mm, H- however, mm. um, you know, when you're looking to say, oh, we need to get, you know, uh-huh, you know, em- emissions down this much or this many percent of re- emissions, it's uh, the, uh, th- the fallacy, I think, might be, well, it's all got to come from energy. It's all got to come from the way we you know, produce our energy. Mm, mm. Wh- whereas if and I'm I'm with your architect friends, mate, my my wife and I, we've got our, our DAs approved. We're building a passive house right. um, because I, uh, I, I, I did the sums of what would it cost to heat and cool our home over the course of our mortgage. Mm. And I was like, that is an enormous waste of money. Mm. I would mm. rather mm. put a portion of that money into the mm. construction mm. to save all that money. Cause I can do heaps better stuff with that money, mm. particularly mm. if we're generating on a roof as well So I can put that money into my super into Wolf or George's education. I can invest it. I can take my family on a holiday mm. versus giving it to a power company. Mm. And that's, mm. so mm. that's what, that's what we're doing. But as far as, you know, energy efficiency, uh, Mates, as you probably have as well, mates from overseas come here and they go, I can't believe how cold I am,
1: you know. This is ridiculous
0: how cold it is in, in a house in Sydney or in Brisbane. A mate of mine grew up in Colorado Springs, all right, is where NORAD is. I think it's at 8,000, 8,500 feet. He said the coldest winter he ever spent was his first winter in Brisbane. Mm, because mm, <laughs> the house is so inefficient. That's right. That's it's just yeah. – but we never think about that. But it's 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 not – a hard fix. I mean, there will—you know—it's a case of Australian building standards changing. Yet, over what's it going to do? It's going to save the average punter money. Mm. Save mm. your money on your energy bill. Mm. Save your money on your power bill. And the other thing, which you mentioned brilliantly, is that—you know—the scare tactic is: oh, if we take coal and stuff offline, we're never going to have enough power. But they're not factoring in the increasing efficiency of every appliance that we use. Every generation of appliance: phone, TV, hairdryer uses less energy to get the same job done. Mm, mm. And that's the, the curve is quite obvious, yes. you know, and that's, that's something that people don't really think about much.
1: No. Well, it's, it's phenomenal. The, the change since 2008 is unprecedented. The energy planners keep saying, well, next year it'll we'll go up. Next year it'll we'll go up. And every year they come out with their predictions that says energy usage will get back on track. But it's not. It's not doing it. And it's because we're getting smarter that we had – Australia and and globally uh, a lot of when, when the energy prices went up in the in the 2000s but particularly in Australia energy prices rose by probably 15% per year for about 3 years so well above CPI so people then really started to think how do I how do I get my energy bills down I'll find you know more efficient ways to do the same thing and that's that's what's been happening
0: and it's, 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 it's a bummer for, for me because I would love it to be the moral argument that makes people want to do this. But if it's economics, then economics it is. I don't care at this point, Alistair. Just get it done. Yeah. Uh, though, you, you know, as I mentioned earlier, for me, I, I would love, you know, you look at how, how energy transformed a country like Qatar, how, en- how energy transformed Abu Dhabi like completely transformed it. Right. The way of right. life is unrecognisable to what it was 50 yeah. years ago. Yeah. That could be us, all right, if we choose to, if we want to. When you look at your students and you see what they're looking at 10, 20 years from now, what excites you the most? What are some technologies and some developments that we will see coming that we may not be aware of now that are on the way? Oh, that's yeah. That's a good. That's
1: a good question. I mean, I think that um, the the playbook that we have now is is to grow the technologies that we've got, and um, you know, just get them up to scale, and change change the way we do everything. So, electrification of everything, I think, is is the pathway. Um, that will have its own challenges. You know, uh, steel, for example, um, and, and mineral processing. The technology that I guess I know the best and, and can look, look through a bit of a crystal ball and see, when I, when I started in the industry 35 years ago, we were making 12% uh, efficient silicon solar modules. We're still making silicon, but we've used that perk technology from the 1980s and 90s out of UNSW. That's now gone mainstream and being scaled up as we speak. Uh, to make 22, 23% efficient solar modules. So solar modules in my, in my career have, have doubled in efficiency, which is fantastic. There's still plenty of opportunity to improve um, solar cell efficiency. So the ultimate limit is probably in, in, in efficiency terms, well up into the 80% efficient. We could convert 80% of sunlight directly to electricity. And that's theoretically possible. We are working on it um, in our labs now. We've been working on it for many years, but that's 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 technology that is not quite here yet. Don't wait for it. Don't wait for it. Get on board with the technology that's here now, and we can we can change the way we do energy, and we can make it more sustainable. But there's still plenty of interesting research to be done uh, by future generations um, that will make make it even more efficient, hopefully also lower cost. I think that that's gonna be necessary to compete with the uh, current silicon technology. But yeah, silicon technology has a, has a way to go yet, but there's other things coming. And the big challenge, the interesting thing too, is that what we've, what we've always believed at UNSW, thanks to Martin Green, Stuart Wenham and others, is that silicon is a good material for our solar cells because it's abundant. Um, other other technologies have come and gone with time, um, but if they're using rare materials, you can't make those things at scale. So I think it's that whole thing of scale, cost, sustainability, and ethics. Uh, all of these things need to be in place to, to make the technology that we're using and the technology of the future.
0: Well, you mentioned the, uh, the, the theoretical upper limit of the solar cell mm. uh the the perk technology up to 80 up to 80 well, percent the
1: perk the PERC won't get us there it'll have to be something the perk may be part of it but it um it, it it'll have to be other technologies which um are in the pipeline so multiple junctions for example so i'm getting a bit technical but at the moment we I'm just good. use a single junction device which means we have one positive one negative layer if we stack them up And we make better use of the sunlight going through that stack of materials and we have plus minus, plus minus, plus minus in, in a stack, a tandem stack or a triple stack, more, more junctions to collect the light and, and collect that light more efficiently. We can push the efficiencies up and we've done this in the lab, but, um, and there are some, some sorts of uh, devices like that available commercially, but they're not dominating yet, but that's what's, that's what will come. That's what we'll. That count. is something like that. that.
0: And, and what's what's great is there's something stuck sticks in my brain when uh, Mike Cannon Brooks was on this show, um, and he just plainly said to me, "Is look, the, you you can't beat uh, investing in a modular technology because the iterations happen so much. Like you get to have yeah. ten solar panels on your roof, and one goes bung. You're by the time you replace it in I don't know, say a hailstone hits it or something. I don't yeah, know, yeah. No, Ibis crashes into it and. A, a, Three years after the other ones were installed, this one, because that same company might have had three or four different models, that one's more efficient Mm. because they just keep, it's small enough, it's not like a coal plant or a nuclear plant where there's only one version of it, they can Mm. just keep making it and getting it better every day if they want, they can get it better and better. And that's that's really fascinating. But the big thing about uh, uh, renewable energy, you mentioned earlier with batteries and pumped hydro, is storage. uh the mining impact on our country is something that we have all got to come to grips with uh it is it's to have batteries we are going to have to dig stuff up how do we dig it up can we be careful about what how it looks when we're finished digging it up how do we not put too much stuff in the atmosphere as we're digging it up how do we process it as you mentioned all that stuff is there where are we with uh kinetic energy like i've seen um I've seen some flywheel installs uh, in Australia and they look, it looks fascinating. This hundred mm. technology that's thousands of years old, right? Used to grind, mm. you know, grind wheat so we could have bread, uh, can store power. Uh, where, where do you see that going? Oh, look, I think uh,
1: there's lots of technologies. We've got no shortage of ideas. Um, the challenge with ideas is getting them to be cost-effective, efficient, and at scale. And I think... At the moment, you no, know, same on the generation side. I mean as I said, solar and wind have grown to be now twelve percent or thereabouts of our electricity in, in the in the Australian network, twelve percent over the year. At in the middle of the day, we're you know fifty or sixty percent and if you're in um, in Adelaide, you know South Australia you can be ninety to hundred percent. But the challenge the challenge for any technology wanting to get um, wanting to get in on the in on the act is that they've got to be done at scale and at, at a low enough cost, and so batteries batteries are growing. They're modular. They can be grown at. Uh, they're growing with the electric vehicle industry driving it. That's going to push that price of the batteries down. Pumped hydro has been around forever. Um, selecting the right sites. Professor Andrew Blakers, ANU, did a study says there's thousands of sites in Australia and globally. We can we can be Careful how we choose the sites to minimize environmental damage. We don't want to be damning, you know, pristine rivers or native forests or national parks. Stay away from that. Um, with old mines, old mines. So Kidston Mine up in Queensland, uh, they, they dug the top out of the mountain. They dug the bottom out of the valley. They've finished mining there now. What do you do with that? Well, hey, they built a solar, uh, farm or solar plant right next door to it, pump Pump water up and down that mountain, and you've got pumped hydro storage there. So, flywheels, yeah. Look, you know, I think everyone, everyone's, everyone's got a good idea, and uh, we we should encourage people with good ideas to keep exploring it. But the the challenge is going to be scale and cost. And uh, but you know, good luck to them. Let's see how we let's see how it goes. Good to have many different technologies. It's always good right. to have many different technologies because. You never, never know. There may be a niche market for for, um, for for all technologies, but which ones will dominate? That's you know. I think you just got to look at the ones that are big now and whose price, whose costs are going down as they scale.
0: And where where are we? Where are we with uh, like? I know where my my first uh, Nissan Leaf was a twenty eleven, and I, I do believe that the the battery pack in that, if that car's, I sold it, it's in America, but if that cars now off the road Mm. that battery pack i do believe is now a part of a nissan manufacturing plant somewhere um that i believe that's how they're reusing those first generation batteries where are we as far as um battery recycling like it costs a lot of money to get all that lithium and 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 cobalt and all that stuff out of the ground when batteries are done in a car in a phone where are we with closing the loop I guess on, yeah. on the uh, even like let's, we talked about EVs where are we with closing the loop on the
1: electric vehicle um, uh, life cycle yeah look I think definitely that can be that should be part of the way um, this all rolls out and I think all products all products should be um, recyclable uh, and it's going to be the lowest cost way really I mean you don't have to do too much to, to reclaim these materials and recycle them so I think I think that should be something that should happen with everything, everything we do. I mean, I lived in Germany uh, thirty years ago, and um, you know they they had a great system for recycling all their bottles, beer, soft drinks, whatever. You you would buy a crate uh, of, of beer with about you know twenty four or thirty uh, bottles of beer. Stick it on the back. I used to stick it on the back of my bicycle, cycle home, come back. With a with an empty crate, empty bottles in it, and hand that in, you you know you get a little bit of a uh, small amount of money, a deposit, etc. But every, everything we do on planet Earth, we need to find that circular economy. We need to make sure that we are not just trashing the planet and saying to the kids, "Eh, what can you do?" You figure it out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it just wasn't cost-effective, kids, to leave you with a with a with a with a planet that was livable. I mean that's just not a conversation that you want to have with future generations. So, we we really just desperately need to stop being teenagers in the sense of trashing the joint and expecting mum and expecting somebody else to clean it up. I'm probably being harsh on teenagers, but um, I'm, I'll I'll leave that image there. I was one. It's okay. Uh, I, know, <laughs> yeah, I know what it's. We were I all. I know there. what it's like. We were all. I know there. what
0: it's like. We what do like. um, wh- you like? Uh, you know. You are, you're the head of the school of photovoltaics and renewable energy. What do you like when it comes time to get a new fridge? Are you just like, yeah, I'll take that one. Or are you, this is a month long process. I'm going to put my, my research team on this. Here we go. Uh,
1: no, there's a wonderful website. There's a wonderful website that, that uh, ranks every appliance you could possibly think of buying that has an energy rating. You just look for that, uh, look on there and pick pick the one that you think has got the, the best deal for you in terms of, you know, how high is the energy star rating? How low is the uh, energy usage? So, yeah, it doesn't take too long, uh, but, you know, go shop for the stars. I mean, um, you know, my air conditioner that I bought, yes, at the time was the most uh, energy efficient one that I could find. And that's that to me was fascinating. Um, one unit of electricity in six units of heating and cooling out. So running it off my solar panels, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's the way to go. It's definitely the way to go. I, I've got to mention pool pumps because my colleagues will say, Alistair, you didn't mention pool pumps. How did you restrain yourself? But um, pool pumps are fascinating to me. I mean, my wife many years ago thought we should get a pool and then I looked into the energy usage there and just thought, oh my gosh, that's, that's a huge amount of energy. But um, clever technology called variable speed drives and just, just moving the water more slowly. We move Currently, we pump a pool and force water through pipes and filters and maybe turn that pool over in maybe four or six hours, something like that. But if we slow that down, we don't need to use six kilowatt hours a day, about a third of the average electricity usage. We can get that down to one kilowatt hour a day by using smart pumps. And so these smart pumps are now in the market. They have eight, nine-star ratings, and a standard pool pump, if if they were rated, would be two or three stars. So look for the stars, go shopping for the stars, um, reach for the stars, there you go. <laughs> I, I love I love that you're talking about pool pumps because
0: as as Australians you know yeah. as as we're going to hit I mean I you know I live in Sydney you live in Sydney and I think the IPCC report which is always cheery reading if anybody's yeah. interested in and in, mm. and you know starting their day with a, a bit of fire in their tummy um, something like I don't know like upwards of fifteen to twenty days over forty eight degrees in mm. Sydney um, mm. per year. So a swimming pool would be a nice thing to have. Mm. Uh, And to have the most efficient version of that, certainly if you're paying you know, whatever, 50, what is it now? 50 something cents a kilowatt hour. Good to uh, it's now 52 cents a kilowatt hour. That's a lot of money to keep your, your pool running. And here I am, we're talking about shopping for the stars. Here I am thinking, well, my heat pump clothes dryer is 10 stars. And I can see you've got like a 50 star one behind you. I believe what you call that, the sun. Uh, you've got a washing line. Um, and that's the other thing, you know, it's, it's not every solution requires some enormous technological intervention. When I lived in America, mm. I live in Los Angeles. No clothes lines, mate. No, clotheslines. course. Clothes lines. It was every house, no clothes lines. My apartment block, no clothes lines. Just dryers. And the old school kind of just Yeah. yeah. 3000 watts per hour. Not everything requires this massive super technological intervention. There are solutions that are really simple. Yeah. And right in front
1: of us. Definitely. Definitely. Look, you know, Drying your clothes on, uh, if you can. I mean, in Australia, plenty of sunshine. Walking, walking, uh, is, is, I, I don't know, maybe you've heard of it. Um, <laughs> no, but uh, look, you know, my wife and I, every now and again, we'll, uh, go out to dinner at our local restaurants and, uh, it's, it's about a 20 minute walk down the hill. And uh, sometimes we'll get the bus back, but sometimes we'll walk back as well. And it's it's really lovely, Friday evening, just taking a stroll, catching up with each other, taking some time out to, you know, just rather than jumping in the car and driving for five minutes and then worrying about parking, you know, you could you could walk. You could walk.
0: Just a moment away from Professor Alistair Sproul to uh, let you know that If you ever want to get in touch with me, it's super easy. Send usher email at gmail.com. And also, Dad Pod with Charlie Clawson is back very, very soon. We are getting episodes together as we speak. We've recorded a bunch, and we're going to get them on air. Quick sticks. We're pretty excited about it. You may want to go back and have a listen to some other episodes. But uh, Charlie and I are very, very happy to get back on deck with Dad Pod. If you'd like to support this show, if this show brings you any value at all, consider, please, maybe sharing this show with someone that... You know, you would like to hear the kind of conversations that we have here. Pretty benign way of kind of putting a new idea to, to somebody that doesn't involve, you know, you or triggering old patterns of arguments, particularly if they're an old white male uh, mm-hmm. conservative voter. <laughs> it could be useful. I don't know. You can support the show as well by going on Patreon, patreon.com slash osher. And there, there are ad-free episodes available. There's also a tier which gets full video episodes, which are pretty sick. So thank you to everyone that jumped on there this week uh, to help me out there. Because there's a team of people that make this show. It's not just me. And so I really, really appreciate your support to help. Because if without the team, I couldn't make this show. So if I don't pay them, the show doesn't happen. So thank you very much for the people that are helping me there. However, this is not an ad-free episode. Here's some ads. And we'll be back with Professor Sproul in just a minute. When you look at your student, when you, when you, you know, go and you stand standing there in your lectures and you see the, the work they're putting forward, what are, you, what are your thoughts about the next 5, 10, 15 years once these young men and women get out in the world and start pitching to VCs and things like that? Oh, look,
1: they're, they're out there now. We've, we've been um, graduating um, students, we've, we've got people first graduates out the door in 2004, and... Some of those young people are now, you know, they are industry leaders. They are working with Tesla, um, shaking things up there. Um, all, all wherever there's energy uh, getting uh, play, tinkered with or played with, uh, you know, our engineers uh, are out there as part of this transition and making it happen. The big battery went in. One of my uh, former students was... Uh, uh, very much involved in putting in the Hornsdale big battery. And, and so I, every now and again, I touch base with them and, and hear the stories that they're telling me of what they've been up to. And, and it's just phenomenal. I heard recently from one of my guys who graduated probably 12 years ago, and he was working down in um, Victoria with farmers and was helping them to be more efficient, more efficient pumping, more efficient irrigation, more efficient cold storage, getting them to switch fuels from... An $80,000 diesel bill for pumping irrigation in a, in a period to a $20,000 electricity bill, uh, for the same job. And, and that's, that story is going to get better because they can switch in with, um, you know, solar now and, and not just buy electricity from the grid. And that will get even cheaper for them and more efficient. So fantastic. And the other thing that I should mention is what's great in our program is that our school, we attract a lot of young women wanting to do our, our renewable energy photovoltaic engineering, uh, and that's fantastic to see because um, these young women are, are really switched on. Um, they do fantastically well in their studies, and then they go out and they, um, you know, breaking, breaking new ground in a very male-dominated engineering, and we need to change that really need to change that and these young women are doing that they're getting out there and, and making a huge difference in in uh, you know bringing greater diversity into the profession
0: you know we're, we're moments away from an election in Australia and I, you know I've got to be honest I, both both of the you know the, the, the two the two leading teams going into the grand final I can't say I'm thrilled at either of the you know plans don't let perfect be the enemy of good Ginsburg do what you say <laughs> You, you obviously, you've been aware of, you know, warming and, the, you know, the effect that that will have on our, our way of life, our national security, our food security, water supply, whatever, mm, mm, for mm, a long time. Mm. When you look at where we are with energy, how, how are you feeling of, you know, where we'll be in, say, 20 years? Oh, look, I'm, I'm optimistic,
1: Osha. I'm optimistic. Energy, energy now, the, the economics is on the side of green. You know, green energy is now the most cost-effective thing that we should be doing. So once once that happened, Osher, when I was trying to convince people decades ago that we should be switching to renewables or even energy efficiency, energy efficiency is a harder argument to make because people get very stuck in their ways. People are quite enthusiastic about the renewables and putting solar on rooftops. So that's been an easier sell. But now, you know, the... It's, it's happening, Osha. It's happening. And the politics is an interesting thing, and I'll let other people comment on the politics. But from a, from a technical point of view, from an energy point of view, we, we have that strong driver of the economics is on, on the side of converting, moving away from fossil fuels and moving towards 100% renewables. So that helps me sleep at night. Um, 20 years ago, when the debate was a moral, ethical one about we should do something to um, stop global warming and people put up all sorts of um, barriers to, to that debate and that was disheartening. I must say I think those were dark days for me um, but I think now I, I can I can look at the future with some hope and I think, you know, if, if that's the message for, for anyone who's listening, I think that there, there's huge hugely good reasons to be hopeful for our future.
0: When you look at the speed of the transition, will Australia's transition to renewable energy uh, domestically, do you think it's going to happen faster than people expect?
1: Oh, definitely. Like I said, we're, we're doing it now and people don't know. We're, 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 uh, we're going to pop out of this in the next five to ten years and, and go, ta-da! You know, it's, 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 it's just going to happen because... We, we, are, we are, like I said, we're 10%, 10% or 12% now we're getting from photovoltaics, from solar. And uh, the only country that's ahead of us in terms of percentage is, um, I forget where it was, um, was it Haiti or somewhere, I think, which, we'd had, which had all its infrastructure wiped out by a cyclone. And yeah. so when they built back, they built back with the renewables, right? So, but in terms of converting a whole economy over, Australia's, Australia, we're, we're at the forefront of having the most solar, um, mainly, mainly due to policies in place for a long time, and the Australian public's enthusiasm for putting solar on our rooftop. But now the economics, as I said, will just keep pushing us down this pathway, and this transition will happen uh, because of the economics may
0: those economics be so powerful that n- not even the most stringent MP who's trying to line up his next job uh, be able to ignore them. No, look, <laughs> I'll put look, it that way.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, look, I think that the power companies, the power companies perhaps somewhat, some, at some stage reluctantly, will make this transition. Mm. And, and uh, some people like, you know, Mike Cannon-Brooks, want to make it happen faster. I think technically there's no barriers to what Mike Cannon-Brooks is proposing. So, you know, this is, this is doable. It's just how long people want to keep, you know, keep the typewriter pool going, you know? Which is... <laughs> <We're, we're> just... <laughs> No. I'll let,
0: I'll let, I'll let you go and Google what a typewriting pool is because that is a really important, that's a, that's a whole other conversation about a technology taking a, a, a form of employment away uh, from a community and what happened next. Uh, that, but you're, a, that's a great analogy. I could talk to you all day about this stuff, mate, but you're a very busy man. You're only like the head of a, an entire department at a university that's changing the world. Uh, mate, I'm so grateful that we charged our cars next to each other. <laughs> You're the best. Uh, If people want to find out more about what you're doing, where can they go and explore?
1: Oh, look, yeah, just look for us, University of New South Wales, School of Photovoltaic, Renewable Energy Engineering. We're on the web. Um, You know, we're we're adding more and more good things all the time, so keep looking there. If you want to study engineering and you want to make a difference to the world, we would love to see you come and do our degree. University of New South Wales, as I said, in solar... We've led the world for the last forty years, um, and and we can help you if you want to make a difference in renewable energy. We would love to to have young people coming in our door and and studying with us. Mate, I'm a so little, grateful. A
0: little ad, pardon? A little ad? <laughs> no, no, please. But I'm just so grateful that someone like you, with your your compass that drives you, is is helping the young men and women. Uh, you know, because. You know, we've we've all learned that you know, like the 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 morals of the coder who wrote the Facebook algorithm that did something changes society. You know, it's the person who writes the code. There might be some person at desk five rows down and two on the left, but how they feel about the world influences how they write that code. And we mm-hmm. may not. It's not some giant overarching decision. It's what's in your heart that changes the very design of the product, which changes the end user. Long we could keep going. Um, you're the best, Alistair, mate. Thanks so much for
1: being on the show. Thanks, Osha. Great to talk.
0: That was Professor alistair Sproul. He's the head of School of uh, Photovoltaic and Renewable Energy Engineering at UNSW. A super inspiring human. I hope you feel better. I feel better after listening to that. I hope you do. It's pretty good. Your vote this weekend is a really big deal. Australia has done really well out of exporting energy in the form of coal, really, for over the last hundred years. Yet we don't want to be Nokia and still be selling the 3210 when Apple launches the iPhone into market, right? We can lead the world through this energy transition. However, it is going to take your vote to help make that happen. Enjoy doing your homework (laughs) and I'll see you Wednesday. Until then, thank you so much to Andy uh, for cutting up this show, Toe Heider, Mike Mills for all the music, Bree Steele on research and support and the executive producer of Everything, Rachel Barrett. Thank you all. Until we speak next time.